You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. So this morning's reading is taken from Matthew 12, verses 28 to 34. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions until he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So I'm going to start by saying that all bits of the Bible are important, right? So even if the verses, I might have given Laura the wrong gospel to read from, all verses are important. (laughs) So, (laughs) we can take all scripture in and um, you can process that one in your own time. I'm I'm not going to talk about that today, Uh, but I'll get to the bit I'm going to talk about later on. Um, great, good start, Leanne. All right, here we go. So this is, my name's Leanne, um, and this is the second, second in the series about Jesus' Jewish roots and what we can understand from uh, Jesus' Jewishness, um, if there is such a word. So I'm talking today about Jesus as rabbi, and I am going to start with a correct quote uh, that Nathan introduced last week, which I think was like the inspiration for this series of talks. And it comes from Brian McLaren. And he said, what if he didn't come to start a new religion, but rather came to start a political, social, religious, artistic, economic, intellectual and spiritual revolution that would give birth to a new world? So like Nathan said last week, we know that Jesus was Jewish And if we can wrap our heads around a little bit of what life was like in first century, then for Jewish people, then that will help us understand a little bit more about what this revolution might look like. So as we get into that from the angle of Jesus being a rabbi, we're going to take a quick look at the landscape uh, that Jesus walked and talked in. So remember at this point, Christianity is not a thing. Um, Jewish people have been living for a long time under other leadership. They're desperate to have their own land, they're desperate to be free, but for so long they've been living under foreign oppression, first from the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, and at the point in the story we enter is the Romans. And the Romans were known for their fierce 
punishments for oppressive taxes. And on top of that, they've got these, uh, these leaders that claim themselves to be gods, these emperors that say that they are also divine. So for Jewish people with a fierce monotheistic faith, this belief in one God is very difficult to coexist peacefully when you've got your own leaders claiming to be divine as well. They didn't want this. Nobody wanted this. Um, and they couldn't get on quietly. So these questions, how can we do this? How can we live? Um, elicited different solutions from different groups. So I'm going to run through quickly four main sort of schools of thought at the time. So I'm going to roughly split you into four groups. So over this little area here, we're going to have the zealots. So, <laughs> a lot of enthusiasm for that. Um, so the zealots, they said, well, we're oppressed because we're passive and cowardly. They said that if we had the courage, then we'd rise up and we'd rebel. They said if we took action, if we cut a few Roman throats, if we had the nerve to launch a violent revolution, then God would give us power and then we would be free. So there's our zealots over here. Then we had here the Herodians and the Sadducees. Well, you looked at them and you said you are daft. You've got no idea how powerful Rome is. If we rebel against it, it would be suicide. Resistance is pointless. You're going to be crushed. So they said, we've just got to make the best of a bad situation. We're going to cooperate and we're going to play the game. It's the only way. So that's you lot. Next group here, we had the Essenes, who Nath mentioned last week. They thought you were both rather enlightened. And they said, well, the only way to please God is to walk away from all the political systems at the time. We're going to go out into the desert and we're going to create our own alternative society. So they set themselves up in various little uh, wilderness communities um, and isolated themselves from everyone else, which Helena and Daniel look quite pleased about. <laughs> Please land in that camp. And then the last group over here was the Pharisees. They had a different approach to everyone else. They said um, that God would send a Messiah, would rescue us if we just become better, if we become purer, if we do a better job of obeying all the teachings of the Torah. Um, if there were more religious people like us and less sinners, that's the way we're going to be freed from all of this. That's how we're going to get away from Roman rule. And these groups amongst themselves would form alliances, would fall out with each other and, and, uh, and argue amongst themselves. So this was what Jesus came into, these kind of four main areas of thinking. Um, and for him, as he grew up as a young boy, like most young Jews from the age of about five or six, he would have been reading and memorizing bits of the Torah at around 10. It's very common. They would have been then learning about the oral Torah, which is basically a record of what rabbis were saying about the written down rules. He would have been learning that. By about 13, most boys would have concluded all their formal study and gone on to learn a craft like carpentry, for example. Um, and the most talented might have gone on to continue their study. But at this time in the first century, then study and knowledge of the, script, the scriptures was paramount. It was more important than anything else. Study of the Torah was such an integral part of life uh, that I read that at celebrations, at weddings, at occasions, you'd often find groups of people disappearing off just to study and discuss a bit more of the Torah. So as Jesus grew up with his own knowledge and his own understanding of this, he would preach 
and he would teach, um, and people would call him rabbi. So there's a story of uh, Bartimaeus when he called out to Jesus, remember the blind guy, and he called out, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. On another occasion, a crowd were looking for Jesus, and when they found him, they said, Rabbi, uh, when did you come here? So they called him a rabbi. And in first century, it's not that easy to define what a rabbi was. It wasn't an official title until some time later. Um, but it was a term of respect, a term that showed that people listened as he taught, and they respected what he was saying. So we can call Jesus a rabbi, and we can call him that because people did. And he did fit in the general sort of rules of being a rabbi. So he taught people how God wanted them to live. He would interpret the Torah. He would travel from place to place. He would rely on the hospitality of others. Like rabbis, he took disciples who will travel around with him and learn from him. And he taught in pictures and parables. So people would have been listening to him and they would have been trying to work out, well, which of these groups does he fit in with? They say, well, look, he's out on the street He's talking boldly. Um, Maybe he's with the zealots. Like He's got a lot of courage. But then he starts saying things like the poor and the meek are going to be blessed. And that's not very zealot-like. So he's sort of a bit like them, but he doesn't fit what they're like. So maybe he's one of the Essenes. But he can't be one of the Essenes because they wouldn't bother preaching to any of us. They're out being a bit weird in the desert, doing their own little thing. And... He can't be a Herodian because he keeps going on about this kingdom of God. He keeps advocating this kingdom that's more important than the kingdom of Caesar. So if he got heard by the Romans talking about this, then there'd be all sorts of trouble. And the other thing he keeps talking about is saying, well, and this kingdom of God is at hand now. Whereas for them, the kingdom of God was something that would come in the future. Once this Messiah has saved them, once there's been some sort of battle, it can't be something now that's for something later. So he can't be one of the Herodians because that's for later. So he sort of sounds a bit like a Pharisee. He's a bit more in line with the Pharisees than the others. But then you see him out at parties with people that Pharisees just wouldn't be hanging around with. And he says really odd things about people needing to be better than the Pharisees. He says things like, unless you do far better than the Pharisees in the matters of right living, then you won't know about entering the kingdom. So I think, well, how can you be better than a Pharisee? Being a Pharisee was all about following all the laws and being as best as you can be. How can you out-Pharisee a Pharisee? So he can't be one of them because he's telling people that he has to be better than them. So it's all really quite confusing. This carpenter's son from Galilee seems to be challenging all four of the main uh, thoughts at the time. He seems to be calling everyone to a rethink and getting quite a bit of traction with it at the same time. So his message is challenging and it's different, especially this whole kingdom of God angle. It was risky and it was revolutionary and he was showing people what we're meant to become. So looking back now, it does make sense that Jesus was uh, a Jewish rabbi. Now people might look at business titans, award winners for role models looking on screens. For then, at that time, being a great scholar of the scriptures, that was the ultimate, that was what people aspired to be. So it makes sense that he was a Jewish rabbi. So 
he absolutely was a rabbi. He called people to walk with him, to learn from him, to follow him so closely, the phrase goes, that uh, to follow so closely that the dust he kicked on would cover their clothes. The dustier you were, the idea that as they're walking on the dusty ground, you're walking so close to your rabbi that when he walks and the dust kicks off his foot that it covers your robes. So if you had a dustier robe, it meant you were closer to your rabbi. And if you were closer to your rabbi, you must have been a bit wiser because you asked more questions. So his role was to teach, and it was up to the disciples to learn. But we all know that it can be quite hard to teach and to learn. He would be telling the disciples things that they just didn't seem to get. And I want to show you uh, a little video that I came across that reminded me of this idea of, of Jesus trying to teach things to disciples, and they're just not quite getting it. Try. Nath, any thoughts? Hmm? Never mind, never mind. Sorry? Uh, yes, you can. Saluda, parate, parate, parate. Taipo, dale. Ahora pisa. in the end, using her own, uh, her own ideas. So the, uh, the teacher's keen to teach, she's keen to learn, uh, but it's just not always that straightforward, is it? So Jesus was a rabbi, he had a lot in common with the other rabbis at the time, um, but we know as well that he wasn't just one of many. So what was different about his message? Now, 
I'm not going to go into this too much because in a few weeks there's a whole uh, talk on the Sermon on the Mount, which is basically like Jesus' masterclass on his message. Um, but there are a few things I am going to pick out. So the first thing I'm going to pick out um, is the controversy we spoke about before briefly that God is greater than any man. This is one of the key differences between what he was saying and what other people were saying. Um, At the time the message was about the kingdom of Caesar, he's talking about the kingdom of God. That would have caused a lot of trouble had he ever, well, it did cause a lot of trouble, as we know. Um, Secondly, he spoke with a lot of authority. So we've got the Sermon on the Mount, sort of picture the scene at the end. Everyone's clearing up and, uh, and people are talking again, trying to work out who is he, who does he belong to, what's his message, what's he about? And there's a verse that says, uh, the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So we get the impression that there was something different about the way he spoke. Another verse talks about how he spoke with great authority as if he knew the mind of God. So the way he delivered his message was really key as well. Another distinctive part of his message was about the complexity of what he was saying. So at the time, there were considered to be these two yokes. There was the yoke of the kingdom and the yoke of the commandments. So when you were a child, you'd be expected to follow the yoke of the kingdom. So this was a very basic thing. This was like, you know, love God, love your neighbor. As you grew up um, and as you became an adult, then you were expected to be following the yoke of the commandments. So that was all 613 laws, uh, much more complicated. So when Jesus spoke, he said, keep, this is the message version, he said, keep company with me and you will learn to live freely and lightly. In other words, he said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I have the yoke of the kingdom. It's essentially, he said, if you take all of this and you boil it down, this is about what I'm calling you to is to love God, to love others. And while you're doing that, have some love and respect for yourself. There's a phrase that I keep hearing kids saying at the moment. They're always saying, like, it's just not that deep. It's not that deep, man. It's just not that deep. And when you look that up in the Urban Dictionary, uh, it tells you it's not that deep means the situation at hand does not require such desperate actions or stop being so dramatic. Which I wonder is what Jesus might echo while he's talking about all of this. Like, the situation at hand does not require such desperate actions. Like, he's not disagreeing with what the laws are saying. I think he just understands what the point of them is, what the purpose of them is. Like, don't be so dramatic. This is about loving each other. Um, And the last one is this idea of maximalism. So, this is the final one. I read about this in a a book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, and I really like it. So it talks about the fact that lots of the rabbis were focused on the minimal requirements of the law. So they tried to outline what you can and you can't do to stay uh, in line with the law. I'm just going to get a line. They sort of said, 
that they worked on defining boundaries. So that was how a lot of rabbis taught, by defining boundaries. Basically saying, if you do this, and you don't eat this, and you act like this, and you say this, then you're safely on this side of the line. If you break these rules, then you find yourself on the other side of the line, and that's not good. So it was this sort of, this is the minimum thing you have to do to stay within the boundary. Jesus' message was different. He said, well, rather than focusing on, like, what's the minimum you can do to stay on this side of the line? His approach was, well, while you're on this side of the line, what's the maximum you can do? Like, how loving can you be? It's easy to say, like, well, just don't be mean to people. But that's not that hard to do. So his message was more of, when you're on this side of the line, what's the most you can do? What's the maximum you can do to show love, to show kindness, to show care? Tony Campolo tells a, a story um, in something I read. He talks about how he was traveling in a different time zone. It was sort of early hours of the morning and he couldn't sleep. So he woke up to go and get himself a donut and he walks down to the donut shop. Uh, and as it turns out, this donut shop, he said it was about two or three in the morning at this point, is where lots of the sex workers hang out at the ends of the night. Um, and this is where they would be. So he was in there getting himself a donut. And then he could hear a conversation behind him. And one lady, he called her Agnes, made the point, she said that the next day would be her birthday. And her friend who was with her was quite scathing and a bit unkind in her response. And she was a bit like, why are you telling me that? What, do you want me to get you a birthday cake or something? And Agnes said, well, no, I'm just telling you. Like, I've never had a birthday party in my life, so I'm not going to expect one now, am I? So Tony Campolo hovers around and then speaks to the donut shop owner and then asks, are these ladies in here every night? And he said, yeah, every night without fail. So he hatches a plan and goes and gets some decorations and some candles and a cake and is there the next night when they come in and they've set it up and they throw her this little birthday party which obviously she loves. There's a big difference, isn't there, between don't be mean and stay on this side of the line and how much can I do on this side of the line to show love and to show care? What's the maximum that I can do? So the message of Rabbi Jesus is about more than defining the boundaries to stay right. The message of Rabbi Jesus is about being a maximalist on this side of kindness. So as I come into land, Nath talked last week a lot about new beginnings. Um, so I want to tie us back in with that. Now, I promise you, there is no time where you are more aware of every single unloving thought, word, action that you have than the week before you're preparing a talk on this. Like, it's been like a, a week of identity crisis, and every time you say something or you think something that you shouldn't, oh my gosh, I'm a terrible human, how am I supposed to stand in front of church and talk about this? But then I just think about what Nathan was saying last week, and, and this is about new starts, isn't it? He was saying, like, we are always going to mess things up, but we are always allowed to reset, and we're always allowed to restart, and we can't be thrown off track because we mess up, because we do something that's not kind, because we say something, we think something that then we regret. We do that. We've just got to be ready to move on from it, to reset and start again. So that's where I want to leave us today. Jesus was a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, but his message was of not lurking behind the limits, but of lavish love. Not always in great gestures, 
but taking opportunities to just show touches of light. He knew the laws, but he was about more than keeping the laws to the letter. He understood their purpose, but he understood that when you distill it all down, it's about loving God, loving each other, and having a little respect and love for ourselves. And we can do this because we know that God loved first. So is this something that we can each hold in mind and be aware of this week? Looking for those opportunities to be maximalist on this side of the line. To love God, to love each other with small gestures that don't have to be grand and to show a bit of love and a bit of care to ourselves, whatever that might mean. A revolution of kindness and love it sounds pretty good. It's a light yoke. It's just not that deep. And I think we can carry it. So I'm going to close with a blessing written by somebody called Rick Court. And he says, May you always be covered by the dust of your rabbi. May you find the dust of your rabbi in moments of quiet reflection. May you find the dust of your rabbi settling in your life as you spend time serving those who have less. And may the dust of your rabbi infiltrate your life as you run after him. And I love this line. May the dust of your rabbi surround you and your life so that the same dust left on you will begin to cover the world around you. Amen.